Hey, out there. Um, uh, I knew Jim and Callum were going to be coming through tonight, and um, I just thought it was such a rich opportunity for us to be able to uh, just talk to these guys a little bit about uh, the context in which they do ministry, particularly as it pertains to the topic we're talking about. We've been talking about spiritual warfare, um, and largely uh, from within our context, we just we live in America. Um, we, you know, I'm a pastor of an American church. This is Pastor Frank. This is our context, and our, our view tends to be limited to what we experience and see, and we often are isolated from the fact that all around the world uh, there are people working in different contexts, and um, the way the Lord works in different places is often different, and the way the enemy works is often different as well. And um, knowing that Jim is in a different context, I thought he could uh, maybe give us some insight as to how some of these things we've been talking about are playing out on the field where they're working. And um, so the way we're going to do this, I'm just going to kind of ask him some questions, and you guys be thinking of questions really casual tonight. You be thinking of some questions that, that, that might pop into your mind that you'd like to know. And uh, as we move along, I'll give you an opportunity to, to jump in as well and, and throw out any questions that you might have. Does that sound good? Pastor Frank. <laughs> I haven't even started, but go ahead. That sounds like a great plan. <laughs> I tell you what, um, I'll lead right into that. Why don't we, um, Jim, just give these guys a second. I've had a lot of chance to talk to you, but they haven't all had a chance to know exactly what it is that you guys are doing in Mexico City. So if you could just give them like, the brief version of what is the ministry that you guys are involved in, and then as that pertains to why you're back here now and what's going on this, sure. this time. Sure, absolutely. <clears throat> we are missionaries with Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California, and I serve as a professor in Mexico City for an extension seminary uh, that is located right downtown Mexico City. So uh, if you're familiar with the work of the Master Seminary in Los Angeles, California, we're just an extension work of that in downtown Mexico City. We have about 125 students on average that are pastors mostly that are in our seminary. Uh, my role there is uh, a missionary professor. I'm the only gringo there. Um, and about seven, eight years ago, um, they had a need at the seminary. Uh, some of the elders at Grace Community Church called me. I was pastoring a church in Richmond, Virginia at the time and asked if I would be willing to come down there and join their staff. My role for the last seven years primarily has been <clears throat> translating, editing, adapting, and teaching both uh, the, the courses that are taught at the Master Seminary I've been primarily in the area of pastoral ministry and expository preaching, uh, biblical counseling, church history. So my role is, um, is a lot of translation work, and I'm, I, I have to do the manuals for both teachers and students. So my, my job is to work myself out of a job so that all, all of the guys that are teaching are national men. So, so I never know what I'm going to teach from year to year because <clears throat> I've worked myself out of several jobs already, and... It's a real joy to see national men <clears throat> that are now serving as professors in those classes that were once my students. Yeah, but that is awesome to see, uh, yeah. to see that progression. So now you're here back in the States because uh, for ever so often you come back to report to the churches that support you. That's that? correct. Yeah. yeah, every four years we were required to come back and give reports to our supporting partner churches. Yeah, and in case you don't know, um, outside of... Uh, like like the Southern Baptist world, uh, missionaries like Jim and so many thousands of other missionaries around the world, um, you know, to, to go and serve somewhere in a foreign country, they have to raise support um, to be able to well to live and and function. And so Jim and Carolyn have churches uh, all along the uh, the kind of the eastern seaboard here that are, are partners with them as far as their support goes. And so what they'll do in these next couple of months is make their way from Georgia, I guess, all the way up to New York is. And uh, hitting these various churches that support them and giving reports on how the ministry is going and what things are going on uh, so that the churches can know and um, be acquainted with the ministry. So that's what they're. So if you're wondering why were they here a while back and now they're back again, uh, besides just wanting to hang out with us for another night, um, that is the. Uh, the we wanted to do that as well. We wanted to do that as well. So that's what these guys are doing. Um, Jim, I wanted to. Uh, one of the things that I, I think would be most interesting to talk about is. is how your ministry context in Mexico City is different from a ministry context here in America. I know you've pastored a church 
in the U.S., and now you're in a whole different culture, in a whole different context. Um, how, how does that, how is it different? How does that environment uh, different? <laughs> well, uh, it's different at many different levels. Uh, it's Spanish, not English. <laughs> That's a big one. <laughs> It's a, it's a mega city. Mexico City is about 24 million people. Uh, it's uh, said to be about the fourth largest city in the world, the largest city here in this, this hemisphere. Um, and it seems like all of those 24 million people have two or three vehicles. And so we all get out on the road and go nowhere fast. Um, but beyond that, and of course, Mexico City, uh, unlike, for example, here in the States, Washington would sort of Washington D.C. would sort of be the seat of political power. New York City might be the seat of financial power, and you know different different areas here. But Mexico City is all of those things wrapped up in one. In Mexico, it's the financial power, the political power, the social power, the economic. It's it's everything. It's just so everything all over Mexico is centered on Mexico City. So it's just a super important um, hub of the whole country. Uh, the the most important difference is the is the spiritual difference the spiritual context in which we minister. Um, there, according to the 2010 census, there are 102 million Roman Catholics in Mexico. There are there are 118 million total people there. That means that between 90 and 92 percent of people who live in Mexico are Roman Catholics. That would be all the way from very nominal to, to very, very fanatical Roman Catholics. Um, it's the second largest Roman Catholic country in the world behind only Brazil. Mm. So there is a very strong fanatical Roman Catholic presence and all that that entails, particularly the worship of the Virgin of Guadalupe, uh, and all sorts of other virgins throughout the country. It involves the worship of all sorts of saints. It involves the worship of all sorts of emblems like crucifixes and rosaries and and just stuff like that. Um, so basically you have the people of Mexico that are just held captive. Um, you know, Satan has blinded their eyes uh, and and held them captive through sacramentalism of, of the sacramentalism of Roman Roman Catholicism mm -hmm. you know we've been talking about spiritual warfare and um, you know so many different ways to define what that is but uh, just in general at least in my mind uh, kind of three categories that, that uh, into which kinds of spiritual warfare fall you've got the world the flesh and the devil and when I categorize it that way using that biblical language I simply mean you've got the world the, the just the whole cultural system that's obviously satanically run. Um, and, 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 you know, whether we're here or there, we're bumping into that, uh, bumping up against that in a lot of different ways. And then you've got the flesh, which is kind of that internal, that internal uh, battle that we face with temptation and temptation to sin, temptation to discouragement, and uh, all of those kinds of things that we battle. And then, then those more acute sort of supernatural kind of, Events that I would put under that category of the devil, just those, these sort of um, acute instances where you know you're having an encounter with, with particular evil at that moment. Um, at least in my mind, those three categories kind of play out on the spectrum. I, and I know that in Mexico City, you guys have seen examples of spiritual warfare taking place in all of those different realms. Um, what, what kind of... How does, what do you see out there as far as warfare goes, as far as satanic opposition to the gospel, to believers, to the work that you're doing? Um, how does, what, what kind of shape does that take, and what does it look like? Uh, could I turn us to a couple of passages of Scripture? We don't, we don't like the Bible here. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, by all means, yes. Please, point us to Scripture. Yeah, um, let me ask you to turn to Psalm 106. If I could, we'll just uh, take a couple of, because I, I think that it's, uh, this is really important, and I think sometimes we overlook this simple, this simple truth that we're getting ready to see here. In Psalm 106, I'm going to read for you verses 34 through 38. <clears throat> this, uh, here, the writer of this particular psalm is giving a review of Israel's history. 
And he says here in verse 34, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Note note particularly there, verses 36 and 37, where it says they served their idols. This is talking actually about the children of Israel. Instead Instead of worshiping the one true living God, they abandoned that and began to worship the idols of the pagan nations around them. In verse 37, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. Um, what, what I think is important to note here is, is that the worship of idols is really the worship of Satan. The worship of idols is really the worship of Satan. And I think that you'll all remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, actually 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, where the Corinthians were having a problem with eating meat that had been offered to idols. Remember, remember yes. that? And uh, one of the reasons, the strong reasons that Paul told them that they should not do that was because that even though the idol was nothing, and even though the meat offered to the idol in itself was nothing, that behind those idols were demons. Mm -hmm. They were demons. Demons uh, impersonate idols, and they control, they supernaturally, satanically control then the people that worship those idols. And so I think sometimes we uh, minimize the horribleness and the wickedness of idol worship. And if you could come to Mexico, you would see that all over. There are idols everywhere, and we see people worshiping idols every day. We see people in processions processions carrying idols that they've made, of course, Mm -hmm. down the road. Um, We see people uh, trying to put back up on their feet idols that have fallen over, which we always think uh, is, is kind of funny. On Sunday, as we were driving home from church this past Sunday, we saw a little shop there in Nesa that said, we will repair your idol. <laughs> but, you know, if God's broken, yeah, then we'll fix it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I took my, uh, a couple of years ago, our daughter and husband brought their son down to Mexico City to visit us. He was seven at the time. We took them down to the main Catholic church downtown, which is a huge, it's about 450 years old, just a huge, huge basilica. And I grabbed him by the hand and I walked him around the edges where there, of course, out on the edges all around the church, there are little chapels. And in these chapels, they're just full of idols, virgins, saints, idols of all different kinds. And as you walk by, you see maybe anywhere from 6 to 15 people that are they're kneeling down in front of those idols, and they are worshiping those idols. So I grabbed him by the hand, and I just slowly walked around the edges, and he was observing. He had never before seen this many idols. In mm-hmm. fact, I don't know if he had ever seen an idol before, because they we tend to kind of cover them up here in, in America mm-hmm. a little bit. But there, they're very out in the open. And, and as we walked around the church, I explained to him what God says that, you know, that we should not make any graven image, that we should only, there's only one true and living God. We got about three quarters of the way around, and he stopped and looked up at me with this great concern in his face. And he says, Poppy, we should just tear down this building and make these people stop worshiping these idols. Hmm. I thought, well, you know, for a seven-year-old, that was, that was pretty... Um, Pretty discerning. He understood that that was wrong and that demons were behind that. Now, sometimes we see that in more visible ways. Um, we got a, our, I was with our youth pastor one day, and he got a call. And some, a young mother, I think she was about 22, 23 years old, that lived just down the street from our church. She had gotten together some of her sisters, and they all night long were taking drugs and they were having um, uh, they were actually worshiping demonic spirits and as the sun came up this had gone on all night long as the sun came up uh, this young mother was obviously demon possessed and and also affected at some level by drugs and she felt that 
Satan was telling her to sacrifice her five-year-old son in order to appease him. And so she grabbed her five-year-old son and she literally pulled out his eyeballs. Of course, he began to scream. And she was in the process of beginning to sacrifice him literally to, to Satan. Uh, and her sisters and family became so concerned that they ran out into the street and called the police, and the police were able to stop them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes uh, Saint Death, people worship Saint Death. Have you heard of Saint Death? Have you guys heard of Saint Death? No. Uh, you might explain that. You mentioned it to me when you were here before. I'm, I'm, I know it was news to me. Yeah, so. Kind of a branch of Roman Catholicism in the last 20 years in Mexico is what they call Saint Death. You, you know what the, um, the Grim Reaper looks like, uh, just a skeleton with kind of a cape around it. And uh, a rem- it was actually the drug cartels that would get thrown in the prisons. They said, we know that we can't pray to the Virgin Mary in order to ask her to bless our criminal activities. So let's create our own saint that we can pray to that will bless our criminal activities and so they created they call it saint death la santa muerte and it's everywhere all over mexico there's estimated about three million believers now and um um people literally there have been a number of human sacrifices um over over the last number of years uh, offered to to saint death so just pure wickedness and evil um so you've got this, this really overt, uh, direct, satanic stuff like the saint death worship. And then, and then uh, I guess, more, um, uh, more, in, uh, more hidden sorts of, of demonic things just hidden behind Christian idols or idols that have some sort of Christian symbolism and whatnot. All of it demonic, yes. all of it still controlling yes. and still diverting people from the true gospel and right. from Christ. Right. And so... Um, so I think it's, it's, it's really deceptive, I think, as Americans, we hear there's a lot of Roman Catholics. Well, um, we don't necessarily understand, first of all, what Roman Catholicism is um, and, and the wide variety of, of meanings that that can have. And then particularly in a different culture, like a Mexican culture, what Roman Catholicism looked like and how far that is from a biblical view of the gospel and Christianity, particularly when you mix that in with all these other sort of um, uh, pieces of culture. Um, and it becomes really just just demonic worship altogether. So you see that all the time. Yes. So the Saint Death is that news to you? Have you heard of this before? No. Good. Uh, that's very good. We don't we don't want to hear this. Um, <clears throat> so in, in the greater culture, just in general, you know, I think <clears throat> in, here in America, I don't know that anybody would necessarily seriously consider our culture a Christian culture in the sense of the idea that most people are genuine believers. Um, but certainly American culture has been influenced by Christianity over the years, and it's shaped somewhat how things happen in our culture. Um, certainly Mexican culture that you're dealing with is not so much that influence. Um, you know, here in, in the States we hear about cartels and we hear about uh, the, the drug uh, trade and so forth. We hear about corruption and so forth. We only hear about it sporadically. Um, it seems to me that just in our conversations that we've had that, that that that's a major part of the spiritual warfare that takes place in, in, in your context is just this whole culture of crime and lawlessness that um, all believers, including those who are missionaries and just the average Mexican Christian who's trying to live, is having to do battle with this. Could you give some context uh, for what that looks like, that just this lawless um, uh, sort of culture? Well, again, I, th- I think that's very, it's very satanic. Uh, you know, when you go through the Bibles and you study Satan and demons and their wickedness and their schemes, uh, one of the things that becomes very obvious is, is that it's, it's just full of wickedness, immorality. Uh, idol worship often goes along with immorality. Mm-hmm. It goes along with corruption and all kinds of wickedness. So... Uh, you know, Mexico is just a very corrupt country. Politically, it's corrupt. Uh, you've probably heard on your nightly news about the drug cartels throughout Mexico. Uh, it's probably much worse than you've heard because our 
experience has been that American news is obsessed with America and rarely reports adequately on news outside the United States. Um, so it's, it's, us it's probably worse than you think it is. The drug cartels basically control Mexico. They control the political arm. They control the religious arm. For example, uh, the drug cartels buy uh, and build new Catholic parishes all over Mexico uh, to please the Roman Catholic Church. So the, the cartels and the Roman Catholic Church are tied at the hip. The cartels, the, the political arm, are tied at the hip. Uh, and everything is just uh, it just corrupt. It's just corrupt and it's wicked. And um, the police are corrupt. Uh, when we first went to Mexico in 1980, um, our first this is our second tour of duty in Mexico. Our first tour was in the 1980s. And uh, uh, older, wiser, experienced missionary uh, told us. He said, if a policeman ever comes and knocks on your door. Don't answer your door and certainly don't let him in because the, the police are among the most corrupt in, in the country. Mm. We have discovered by experience, unfortunately, over the last, since 1980, that, that unfortunately that is, that is true. So when something bad happens to us here in America, if we feel that, that an injustice has been created or that a crime is being committed against us, our natural inclination is to report it to legal authorities because we assume that uh, justice will be sought and hopefully obtained. Right. It doesn't always happen, but, but that's what we assume. Right. Uh, in Mexico, you don't assume that. You assume that there is just as great a likelihood that a policeman committed the crime uh, as he is going to try to help you with the crime. Mm -hmm. So... So it's like there's nobody to appeal to. You can't go to the police and appeal to. You can't go to the government because it's just corrupt from top to bottom. Yeah. And uh, the so your confidence in the Lord, and and all those wonderful truths you've been studying in Ephesians six about our spiritual warfare, and the armor that God has provided. I mean, He is our source of strength and protection. He is our rock alone and. You really are left in daily situations where he is your he is he is your only strength and source. Yeah, I think you know we we just are so accustomed to our culture that we just assume it's like that everywhere. That if you have a problem, you can call the police and get help. Um, unless you unless you're in another context, you don't necessarily understand that in much of the world, maybe even most of the world, um, it, it, that isn't how it is. Um, you've got to. A satanic culture that envelops even law enforcement and all of these other areas of life as well. So part of the warfare you guys deal with is just the daily living under that kind of a satanically controlled culture right. um, that is bumping up against you really from every angle. And um, let, let me just add one more verse to that, Greg, because in our newsletters that we send out, when we ask people to pray for us, yeah. the the verse that we most commonly use is Second Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 and let me just read that to you because obviously this was common to the apostle paul as well but he says finally brothers pray for us that the word of the lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith so, and then in verse 3 he adds, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Mm. So, I mean, obviously as Paul took the gospel throughout the known world at that time, he was constantly confronted by wicked and evil men. He was constantly confronted by the evil one. Right. And one of, his, one of his most repeated prayer requests was, please pray for us that the Lord will deliver us from these kind of people. Yep. Um, now, uh, you can talk about this as little or as much as you are interested in, but um, in the midst of that, that cultural stuff that's just going on, there are those, those, those moments when you know you're dealing with an individual who is just satanically motivated or controlled or uh, where you're dealing with an acute situation of spiritual warfare. I know you had an experience like that. probably have had multiple ones, but one that we've talked about on a couple of occasions uh, um, where uh, where you encountered a police officer who definitely fit that category. Would you be interested? Would you mind sharing just a little bit about that with 
with sure. these guys. Uh, come on and visit us in Mexico. <laughs> uh, the, the United States government recognizes, uh, State Department recognizes three different kinds of kidnappings in Mexico. There's what they call the traditional kidnapping, which is where you're kidnapped by wicked people and you're held anywhere from a few weeks to a few months to a few years. So it's kind of a more of a long-term thing. And then there's what they call express kidnappings, where a person is kidnapped for just a few hours. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and during those few hours, they are forced at gunpoint to go to ATM machines. Uh, any source that the wicked people think that they could get money through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're held just long enough for them to get what money they think they can from you. Uh, I was a victim of of an express kidnapping uh, a year ago Christmas, just before Christmas. Um, it was not a pleasant experience. There were two policemen that were very wicked men um, in their police suits, armed, and they kidnapped me. I didn't know it was going to be an express. I did, you know, you never know if it's going to be an express or how long it's going to last or whether you're even going to survive that event. Um, but the Lord chose to preserve my life. And uh, although it greatly impacted both Carolyn and I, because you realize that your life is but a vapor. Then there's also what they call virtual kidnappings, where uh, they will maybe steal your telephone and get all of your contacts inside of your telephone number. Gotcha. And they will call your wife or they'll call a family member and they'll say, uh, we've got your husband, when in fact they don't. Mm-hmm. We've got your daughter, we've got your son, we've got your husband. We need you to pay us a uh, hundred thousand pesos or a million pesos, and then we'll release them. And m- many, much money has been paid out like that. And, and in fact, the criminals never even had possession of the person. Just the phone. Or just, just the. the it was just what they call virtual kidnapping. So, kidnapping is a growing problem, and, and is just every day something we live with. Yeah. So you've got those, you know, those kinds of, and, and that's and certainly. For believers, that's part of the, the warfare. You know, one of the things that we've talked about uh, in, in our study here has been how uh, Satan is a master deceiver. The Bible describes him as, you know, in various ways around the same theme. Uh, a liar, the father of lies, a deceiver, um, uh, all of those kinds of things. And that he, that he thrives in the area of lies and confusion and twisting the truth and... Um, and so forth, and so, and that being the goal, and the goal of it being really, um, uh, at least the, the sense I get from Ephesians uh, six, when Paul is talking about the goal is, it often is to to knock believers out of the the battle, to knock us out. You get this idea that Paul is saying to put on the armor so that you can stand and you can remain standing and keep standing and not get knocked out of the fight. Um, and so it seems to me that a lot of the spiritual warfare that, that happens is. is it's generated towards uh, believers um, to to um, lie to them, deceive them, uh, incite fear or intimidation or um, some of those kinds of things in order, or discouragement or any of those kinds of things to in order to get them into a position where they're ineffective for the kingdom. So in the case of a missionary, to get them off of the field or to get them out of the gospel sharing business or to get Christians out of the way do you is this do you see this kind of being the goal of or, or, or the aim at what's happening in in that culture as well fear intimidation lies uh, yes i would i would say yes to all of that mm-hmm. um, and and also i would just add that missionaries or pastors uh or christian workers vocationally speaking are not immune from these temptations. They are not immune from these attacks. In fact, I think at many points in time they become the key target of these attacks. And so, you know, as missionaries over the years, we've dealt with uh, discouragement, with depression, with fear. Uh, There are times that we've we've gone through periods of, I would maybe call them extraordinary extraordinary temptation. that has to be resisted um, by God's grace. Uh, anything that might disqualify, to try to disqualify you from being a missionary or from being a pastor, sure. um, you're faced with all of those things. And it is only through the armor that God provides us in Christ, in Him 
crucified and risen again, that we can have victory over this. Yeah, and I would imagine you guys uh, serving in a, in a seminary where you're training indigenous pastors, um, certainly those guys are, are part of the target audience as well. Uh, I think when the enemy has a lock on a culture like that, um, and he's got so many so many willing people at his, at his, um, as his means to manipulate, um, I would think that there would be some strong pushback against any gospel movement going on there. Are you seeing that in the, the men who are being trained, the, the, the local pastors who are being trained in the seminary? Are you seeing them come across um, resistance from the enemy? Yes. Um, yes, although because we're responding to what what we perceive as sort of a reformation <laughs> we were sharing with with some of you at supper time tonight that we are there in mexico city at the invitation of a remnant of pastors there mexican pastors mm. that just began to see the decay that was going on doctrinally and they said please come down and help us and so we're we're responding to people that understand the need for the centrality of the Word of God in their own lives, in the life of the church, in the life of mission, in the, in, in the life of evangelism. Because all of those things had just gotten off track. They were evangelizing, but not with the biblical gospel. They had church, but not according to the New Testament. Uh, you know, they, they were just off the plantation. And so it's been a real joy to go down and, re- and just teach them the Bible and see their response to it and say, this is what we need. Yeah. This is what we need. I, uh, um, recently, I was invited by a, an associate pastor of a Pentecostal church, of a Pentecostal church. And he said, Brother Jim, would you be willing to come to our next youth retreat and preach the Bible? And then he added the words... We no longer preach the Bible. Wow. And so I showed up. There were, there were actually seven Pentecostal churches in the youth, and there was a large auditorium, and it was jam-packed, and they opened the rear doors and set up chairs as far back as you could see and set up screens. And one of the things I noticed about these several hundred youth that gathered was is that may, there may have only been one or two that actually brought a Bible. And when I got up to preach the Bible, I preached for an hour, even though I, I think some of them didn't like it. Yeah. They're just not used to somebody getting up and opening the Bible and teaching the Bible to them. Yeah. And so even though all of those were all Pentecostal youth and members of Pentecostal churches, I would guesstimate that most of them did not even know the Lord. You know, there, sure. there was not genuine salvation. There was no rebirth in their lives just because there's been no true gospel preaching. Yeah. So we have that all the time. And so these pastors that we're training, they are rediscovering for the first time what the Word of God says about the church, what the Word of God says about the gospel, what the Word of God says about uh, all of the areas of the life of the church. Yeah. And so they're going back and they're reforming their churches. And sometime in the process of reforming their churches, they get kicked out. Um, you know, we, Carolyn and I have had the great joy in the last three months of helping two of our graduates start a new church. And uh, the reason that this new church is starting was because this young man, Asael Hernandez, who's 35 years old, grew up in a, a home of a Pentecostal pastor. And as he went through seminary, he realized what the Bible really taught about these things. And he would go back on the weekends and teach the Bible at the, at the Pentecostal church. Mm-hmm. And one day, it was about two months ago, two or three months ago, the, the Pentecostal Association of Mexico showed up at their church on Sunday morning and basically told him, they said, you are teaching heresy Um, and they kicked him out they expelled him just because he was teaching the bible and so we're helping them and there's there's about uh, i think about seven or eight of those families that have formed now a new group uh, that's going to be biblically sound it's going to be a biblical church a biblical church in the middle of that so there's a lot of that there are a lot of new churches being planted but biblically sound churches and then there are some churches that are being reformed 
simply because the people are obedient to the word. Well, we, we thank the Lord that, uh, that in the midst of our warfare, there were, it's not dependent on our own strength. Amen. Uh, all those passages are just talking back to Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and put on the armor of God. And the idea that God is doing this, this fighting for us Amen. is, uh, I know that's got to be reassuring in that context. I'm sure you guys have seen some visible ways where, yeah. where that's happening, where God is defending and God is fighting for and on behalf of his people. Um, in the midst of that kind of darkness, yes. um, seeing people come to Christ, seeing biblical churches planted, and so forth. Um, you know, one of the things that in dealing with spiritual warfare in American culture um, that I've noticed is that kind of the charismatic movement in our culture has, has kind of hijacked this area of theology in a lot of ways. If you look at look for books on spiritual warfare, the bulk of it is coming out of that movement, and um, much of it deals with um, you know the idea of chasing after demons and prayer walking places and territorial spirits and running after exorcisms and all of this kind of of, um, uh, of thing is is that do you see that presence in Mexico or is that not something that's that's happening there? Yeah, you know, see, it was C.S. Lewis that said that um, we're the believer is faced with two errors. One error is to believe that Satan and his demons are a myth and really don't exist. Right. The other error is to become obsessed with Satan and his demons to the degree that we give them much greater power than they really, really have. So on one hand, there's underestimating the, the spiritual warfare. Yes. On the other hand, there's an overestimating of the spiritual warfare. Uh, but the unfortunately, the what Mexican and most Latin American Christians are people, when they turn on their television, what they see is not really biblical Christianity. It's Benny Hinn, or it's one of his disciples, and there are, there are many, many of them. Yes. Uh, we were out in a, preaching in a, in a little Honduran village down in Honduras, and it was just as poor as could be. And we would go over in the morning and have breakfast at a little restaurant that they had set up for us. And I mean, these people were just dirt poor. But they had a little black and white television in that restaurant that had a little antenna that was kind of flopped over to the side like this. And if they held it just right, they could pick up a signal. Uh -huh. And, of course, you know who was on that TV. Who's Benny Hinn. Benny Hinn. And, I mean, it's just all across mm -hmm. Latin America. That's what they think Christianity is, yeah. is the extreme elements of the charismatic movement and the Pentecostal movement. And, uh, of course, uh, you went to the Strange Fire Conference. If you read John's book on, uh, on that conference, he, in one of his chapters, he researches the history of the Pentecostal movement. Right. And really, the roots of Pentecostalism come out of Satanism and, and false teaching on... It's, it's just satanic. It is. And uh, probably 80% of Pentecostalism in Latin America, certainly in, in Mexico, would just have very satanic roots. So, you know, here we, we, we think about a woman trying to sacrifice her son. We see that as spiritual warfare. We yeah. can agree with that. We go out to the pyramids north of Mexico City. The third largest pyramid in the world is there, about uh, 2,500 years old. Uh, the pyramid to the sun. We climb up on the, to the top of the pyramid, uh, 2,000 feet, uh, because that's where the Olmeca Indians, about 500 years before Christ, worshipped the sun. We climbed up to the top, and what did we see but a group of about 10 to 15 people up there worshiping the sun. They literally were climbing up ahead of us, and when they got up to the top, they formed a circle, and then they raised their hands, and we could hear them worshiping the sun. And just down the, the pyramid, down from there was the pyramid to the moon. They would go down there and worship the moon. And you know, God prohibited, prohibited the people of Israel from doing that. We see that, and we know that that is satanic warfare. Yeah. We see stuff, we, you know. But what we don't often think of is when we see so-called, uh, quote-unquote, Christian evangelical churches yeah. uh, do some of the things that they do. Uh, we don't understand that at the very roots under, under that is a lot of satanic deception and a lot of satanic lies. In fact, uh, I noticed that you guys have it here, too. We were in the 
hotel last night, and I flipped on the TV there at the hotel and kind of skimmed through. And I, I noticed you got a lot of those channels here too. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> we do. so we you have to be really careful. You yeah. do, and. You know, it seems to me that, that, the, that our instructions in Scripture, whether we be in a Mexican context or American context, in this area of spiritual warfare is, is not to chase after demons. It's not to be obsessed with the supernatural or the mystical. Um, but it seems that, that, our, that, our, def, that our, our commands are in the areas of, of dealing with the truth, knowing the truth, believing the truth, living the truth, communicating the truth in the face of lies, and then, then resisting the devil um, and, and standing firm and truth of God and um, I know that that's part of what you guys are doing it's it's what you're training pastors to do there and um, uh, I, I can only imagine uh, the kinds of things that are you guys are you, you, you're flipping so that tells me you've got yeah I was just yeah. because this has become such a prominent part of our evangelical culture in America where this whole thing where we rebuke Satan mm-hmm. we cast out demons we, we supposedly do all of these things, but, but not according to the Word of God. And a couple of passages come to my mind, Second Corinthians chapter 10, uh, beginning with verse 3, Paul writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the war- weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but, are, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Uh, the word strongholds there really has the idea of, of a, like a huge sit citadel a huge fortress sitting on top of a hill and basically what paul is saying here and and we look in verse five and we say well what are these strongholds and verse five says we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of god and take every thought captive to obey christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete so Basically, whether it's Catholicism or Islam or Buddhism or whatever the false religion, Satan has just erected these huge fortresses in which he holds people captive through lies and deception. And so Paul says that the way that we deal with that is not through the flesh, but we deal with that by taking every thought captive to obey in other words, our goal is to teach and preach the truth. Yeah. So we go to Mexico not to cast out demons, not to rebuke Satan, uh, but we go down there to teach the truth. The way to, to demolish these strongholds is to teach the truth. That's right. And so we teach the truth of God's word. And in the process of teaching the truth of God's word, strongholds are being demolished in people's lives. Mm. And I think it's interesting to note in Jude, you know, when it says that Michael um, was uh, fighting over Satan over the body of Moses. Yes. And it, it says there that Michael refused to rebuke Satan, but rather he said, the Lord rebuke you. Right. So, you know, I think that we're very presumptuous to think that we can stand before Satan and his demonic beings and and suggest that we can rebuke them. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I remember the story of the sons of Sceva in Acts chapter 19, you know, where, where these charlatans were going to cast out demons because they saw Paul and the apostles do yeah. it, right? And didn't turn out so well it for didn't those turn guys. out so well for those guys. So our, our, uh, say our satanic warfare is not rebuking and casting out, but rather it's standing strong in the truth of the Word of God and preaching and teaching clearly the Word of God. And as we do that, the Spirit takes the Word of God and demolishes these false arguments yeah. and these pretenses and these deceptions that people are in. Yeah. Well, amen to that. That's, uh, thank the Lord for that. Thank, thank the Lord mm-hmm. that it's not up to our strength and our own wisdom and our own uh, cunning and, and ability. We would all be in a bit of trouble. Um, I want to give these guys an opportunity to ask some questions. You guys have some things that... Um, that you're interested in knowing uh, in regards to what these guys are seeing or spiritual warfare. Yeah, Greg. This is a Greg Falk, by the way. Yeah, he's a great Sunday school teacher. We were, <laughs> we were in his class, and uh, we really enjoyed it. <laughs> he's got a great name, too, Greg. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs>
Boy, you're giving me a pretty open paper there, aren't you? <laughs> well, I mean, we know that Satan is the enemy of God. Uh, we know what his beginning was, and we know what his ending is going to be. And in between, we know what his deceptions and his schemes and his methods are. And, and obviously, but, it, but if you look at the root of all of that, Satan hates God. Satan was lifted up with pride against God, rebelled against God. And so his goal is to subvert the reality of God and to place himself in the role of God. When you look, for example, at the word Antichrist in the New Testament, which it's used several times in the New Testament, we often make the point, preachers often make the point, that the prefix anti means against Christ. So the Antichrist is against Christ. But the prefix anti can also mean in place of. So Satan not only puts himself against Christ, but he makes himself to appear to be Christ. So that people are deceived, and rather than worship the one true and living God, their eyes are blinded and taken away to worship, whether it's an idol or anything that we would place in place of God. Anything that would take our attention away from the one true living God, that's what Satan does to us. So um, I'll just give you some of my personal, it's been seven years since we've lived here. So I might be a little bit out of touch, but I'll just tell you some of my perceptions of what I think is going on in America. I think that American, Americans and American Christianity in particular has been distracted by materialism. I think that we have been distracted by entertainment. Um, it's amazing to me how often we use the word fun. Oh, was, did you have fun? Was that fun? Let's go have some fun. And everything is about... Uh, what will satisfy me? And so, obviously, we have replaced a worship and an honor and an obedience to the one true and living God by all of these, whether it's materialism or whether it's entertainment, uh, whether it's riches, you know, all of these things we have replaced rather than the worship of the one true God. And surely Satan is in that every bit as much as he is in uh, the Santa Muerte, as, as, as surely he is in the moon and sun worship in Mexico and any other thing. You know, I tend to think, um, I have this in my head, imagine this way, Satan is not a, um, he's not a fool, he's, he's an intelligent being. Yeah. And, and it seems to me that he understands cultures probably better than the people who live in the culture and and, and I, I seem to think he's got a, just got its own personalized recipe for each culture, maybe even down to each person, you know, knowing what that culture, that person, um, what's particularly tempting to them. And he brings a recipe into their life that's particular and effective there. I think maybe that's why in America we see different kinds of, of assaults than you see in a, in a Mexican culture. Yeah, let me go back to, the, to this point, too, as well, because... We, we have, for example, the, pros, the so-called prosperity gospel. We have the word of faith movement. And I don't want to get into a, to long discussions of, of all of that, but when you study the word of faith movement, when you study the prosperity gospel, when you watch TBN television, um, what you are seeing is nothing, for the most part, nothing more than satanic deception and lies. Um, and so, there, to me, there's not a lot of difference between the, uh, the prosperity teacher that says, send me your last dollar as a seed faith promise, and if you have enough faith, God will give you health, wealth, and prosperity. There's not a whole lot of difference to me than that, than the drug cartel guy in Mexico City that walks down to St. Death Idol, downtown Mexico City, and puts a gold chain around the idol's neck and puts a cigar in his mouth and rolls up a $500 U.S. bill and puts it between his ribs and asks St. Death to bless his cartel activities. 
I mean, what essentially, what's the difference? <laughs> you know. Brief answer. Uh, professors, Rand, professors have a hard time giving brief answers. They're used to preachers. We do too. <laughs> Ray Matthews back here in the red shirt. That's that's true. Most mostly of the southern Mexican states. Down in Chiapas would be the center of that activity. But over the last 50, 60 years, there are people that have been martyred for their faith by the Roman Catholic Church. Yes. It happens, I would say, on a regular, a fairly regular basis. I'll just repeat the question because we're recording this. Ray was saying, uh, just for recording purposes, that in Chiapas where he had visited, when folks uh, converted to genuine Christianity out, out of the Roman Catholic, um, perverted Roman Catholic view that's going on down there, that they would often be persecuted or martyred, and that's what you were responding to. Um, Any other? Yeah, uh, Jeff. Yeah, in fact, it was that very ecumenism that gave rise to a core group of pastors out of Mexico City coming to John MacArthur, Grace Community Church, and saying, would you please come help us? And that happened in 1998, and John responded to that, said, we'll set up an extension of our seminary there. And so our work there really has been in response to, you know, every time there is a a fault, whether it's modernism, postmodernism, liberalism, whatever name you want to give it, every time one of those movements come along, there's always God's remnant, <laughs> just like we see throughout Scripture. God always has a remnant. And, and even within the most horrible, misdirected, false movements, religious movements of the world, God has his own. He has his own. And, and eventually, even, even if those remnant are temporarily blinded and deceived, the, the Lord eventually opens their eyes and they seek for the truth. Um, so... I'm thankful that the Lord has raised up. The, uh, if we were missionaries in Mexico in the 1980s, and if you would have asked me then if I knew of a reformed, um, sovereign grace, expository preaching church in Mexico, I don't think I could have named one. They just weren't there. They were non-existent. Um, and it's basically been... Since for the last 15 years, in fact, many of the Mexican pastors that we work with uh, have called what's happened there the last 15 years, they call it their Mexican Reformation. Because many, there have been many parallels uh, as, the, as the true gospel of grace has come in, as it's been preached. Uh, as, as these men learn how to teach and preach the scriptures expositionally, authoritatively, clearly, sequentially. Um, their lives have been changed, and now their congregants' lives are being changed. Pastor Frank.
You know, uh, Pastor Frank, I, I guess I would respond to that just, and I don't want to sound trite, but just teaching the men the Bible. Uh, I mean, like the first year is Old and New Testament survey. They go through every book of the Bible and study its themes and its major points. The second year is just for systematic theology, so they learn the Scripture from a systematical perspective. And then they go through four years of Greek and Hebrew and of pastoral ministry, just studying the Bible all the way through. And the professors, obviously being Mexican men themselves, knowing where the challenges are out, out in the neighborhood, are keying in on those things. Uh, for example, obviously Roman Catholicism is a big thing for us. And so we have courses on Roman Catholicism. What is Roman Catholicism? What does Roman Catholicism teach? We have courses on the Mexican version of Roman Catholicism, which is a, a syncretistic um, amalgamation between what I would call a true Roman Catholicism and paganism, which my wife always laughs when I say that because they're both pagan. Uh, but, but you understand what I mean, that when the Spaniards came to Mexico about 500 years ago, they imposed Catholicism on the uh, indigenous tribal pagan Indians by life or death at the point of a sword. So at that very beginning movement, the, the Spaniards realized that the only way they could get the indigenous peoples to accept Catholicism was to marry it with their local pagan religions. So to this day, Mexican Catholicism is a marriage of, of, that, of all of that. So we have courses on that at the seminary. But most of these guys, I would say 95% of these guys came out of Catholicism. I mean, almost every week we have people around our table that tell us about witchcraft, paganism, pagan practices that God saved them out of. So it's not like they're unaware of those forces. They're very aware of those forces because God saved them out of that uh, wickedness. And so now, coming out of that, they have a very good, they know exactly what's going on in, in that area. And so they, come, they learn the Bible, go back in, and teach, teach the truth. So that, it's just teaching the truth, teaching the truth, and zeroing in and helping them in areas where, where they, they need help. But most of these men are very aware of the evils of, of this in Mexico. I mean, we, you can go down to the front of the Catholic Church downtown, and they have what they call cleansings. These are very common. You can go down there any day and see it, where they take a, a, a boi- sometimes it's a boiled egg and sometimes it's a raw egg. And the person that believes that a hex has been put on, or that a curse has been placed on them, will pay a witch doctor to cleanse them. And so the witch doctor will take an egg, and he will... He will take the egg and he won't touch their body, but he'll rub the egg all around their body, uh, supposedly to remove the evil spirit. Well, there are guys that have seen the egg turn all sorts of different colors. There are they see sometimes the egg change, uh, changing shape, and so obviously that you know that's satanic power where where Satan shows them a satanic power, and they just become even more captive to, to the lie of, of yeah. that. Absolutely. All right, got time for one more. Uh, John? Yes. Just preach the gospel, uh, evangelize them. That uh, that sounds trite, but 
within the last 50 years in America, there's been a, a lot of error that has entered into the church through missiology, through missionaries. And among those areas is something called contextualization. There are some aspects of contextualization that are okay. But there are some aspects of contextualization that are not okay to the point where, you know, you're told, well, you need to develop a very, very close relationship and friendship with this unsafe person in order for you to gain the right of sharing the gospel with them. And so people supposedly maintain these friendships for years and years and years without ever sharing the gospel because they say, well, we're, we're building, we're contextualizing. <laughs> Look, brother. If the Lord puts you with an unsaved person, you need to share Christ with them. Whether that's on the airplane or uh, at work or next door. Uh, we, we, don't have the, we don't have to gain the right to share the gospel with anybody. Christ has commanded us to go on all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Obviously, we want to do that humbly, with a gracious spirit, not argumentatively. Uh, you know, Second Timothy two twenty four and twenty five. We don't we don't get caught up in in arguing, because we realize that this is a sovereign work of God, and we share the truth, we share the gospel, and God saves His own. He saves His elect, those that He has chosen before the foundation of the world. He saves them. And I don't know if you're aware of J. I. Packer's book, so, uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Yeah. Great. One of his quotes in there, he was talking about, well, he said that people argue against God's sovereignty and salvation because they say that will disincentivize evangelism. And he responds to that by saying, no, God's sovereignty and salvation is the only thing that gives us a guarantee that there will be any success in our evangelism. Yeah. <laughs> if, if God had not chosen before the foundation of the world those whom he will save... Then, then nobody would be saved. But we have the hope that God has his own in this city, as Paul said. And so we share the gospel with everybody, knowing that those that God has chosen, it will be like a lightning rod. He will speak light into their soul and they will come alive. And and so we don't have to win those arguments. We don't We don't have to be uh, an argument winner. Do you know what I'm saying? But we need to love people, care for people, but share the truth with people. Yeah, you know, it's just those things are often couched as mutually exclusive, like we either share the gospel or build relationship. And and it's kind of a a silly dichotomy. There's no reason that you can't do both. At the same time, we share the gospel in a loving way while building a relationship and finding continuous ways to inject the gospel. So, well, Jim, thanks for... uh, for hanging out with us tonight Thank and you. for uh, kind of just letting us pepper you with questions. And if you guys have more questions, uh, we're going to wrap up here in, in just a second. I know Jim uh, and Carolyn as well wouldn't mind uh, just put her on the spot there as well. Uh, we'd be happy to answer more questions if you'd like to, to chat with them. Uh, they take off in the morning to make their trek up to starting in Georgia up, this, up the uh, East Coast. So uh, keep them on your prayer list, if you will. Uh, as they um, enter this season of ministry before they go back. So let's pray together and we'll, uh, we'll wrap up. Uh, Father, we are eternally grateful for you, uh, for your son, Jesus, particularly, who shed his blood on the cross that we might have life everlasting. And uh, uh, we, we, we never get tired of hearing the gospel and thinking about the gospel and particularly the cross of Jesus Christ. And uh, we're so thankful for what you've done for us, Jesus. We're so thankful that you've uh, given your life for us, that you shed your blood for us, that you have given us your spirit to live within us, to indwell us, to empower us for life and godliness and for ministry. We thank you that you've called us into your service, not to be just passive observers, but to be active participants in your kingdom. And uh, we're thankful for people like Jim and Carolyn who have taken that call seriously, Lord, and if. Have left their home and their families and their their nation and planted themselves elsewhere in the midst of a pagan culture, uh, taking the gospel in, in very dark places where it's desperately needed. We thank you for their work and for their ministry. Pray that you would continue to bless them and empower them, continue to protect them from the enemy who would seek to discourage and frighten them, who would um, seek to, uh, to to do whatever he could to undermine their work. We pray that you would protect them, that you would empower uh, Jim's teaching, his preaching, empower Carolyn's work with the 
uh, with the ladies with whom she works. Uh, continue to prosper the seminary, Lord, and draw men to that place that they might find training in the gospel and that they might be launched out into that, into that nation uh, with the true gospel of Jesus Christ and continue to burn a reformation in Mexico, Lord, we pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the blessing that we have of living in the U.S., for the, for the great privilege that we have to be able to call the police when we have trouble and expect help um, and all these other things that are part of your common grace to us here. Uh, we, we, we're thankful for that, Lord. We take those things for granted too often. Uh, and yet also, Lord, uh, remind us, impress us tonight with the reality that we too live in a pagan culture. Um, it, it has all the language of Christianity. It has much of the trappings of Christianity. But underneath it all, is uh, much of the same uh, demonic and satanic um, root that uh, it's in Mexico and other more overtly pagan places. Uh, make us missionaries in our city, in our neighborhoods, in our families, uh, in our nation. And uh, we pray for the progress of the gospel and open doors for it here as well. Uh, Lord Jesus, we love you and thank you for our opportunity tonight to fellowship together. We pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen. 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 In Christ's name. Amen.